something happening here. In the months leading up to the riot, it was apparent that there was racial tension in many U.S. cities. In 1965, riots erupted in the Watts section of Los Angeles. In the summer of 1966, Cleveland experienced rioting, and in mid-July 1967, Newark, New Jersey saw a riot that arose for many of the same reasons as the one in Detroit. Bill Sarin is an associate professor of journalism at New York University. In 1967, he was part of the Detroit Free Press team that won a Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of the civil disturbance. Sarin fondly remembers the city when he arrived from Saginaw in March of 1966, but he says there was a palpable tension. I thought that I had come to Paris. I really did. And uh, you could go anywhere in Detroit, and I went to African American. I, I heard uh, Horace Silver play. You could do that thing, those things. But stuff was simmering. Stuff was simmering. There's no doubt about it. Call it ignorant bliss, but many Eastsiders were enjoying the great American city that Detroit had come to represent in previous years. Jobs were available, there were nice neighborhoods, and one of the best school systems in the country. Even though racial tensions began to rise in the mid-60s because of low minority representation in city government and on the police force, the neighborhoods were far more integrated than they are today. Robert Davis is a retired Chrysler auto worker. He has lived on Concord at Charlevoix on the city's east side since 1948. There, he and his wife raised four children. When the riot broke out, Davis lost many corner stores in his neighborhood. These were not the party stores that populate so many neighborhoods today. These were small mom-and-pop grocery and hardware stores. Davis says the loss of those stores was a devastating blow. We wasn't pleased with that ride because they, uh, Burned, you know, they burn up all the business in the neighborhood. See, you, you need certain business in your neighborhood. And we didn't have that no more. You know what I mean? They, they just go, we had beautiful uh, supermarket on Kirchman and, and Concord. And uh, 10 cent stores and all kind of drug stores and things. We had, if thing was convenient, clothes where you could walk to and, and you know, get what you want. You had to go downtown or catch a bus and go somewhere else to get what you want for that ride. Suzanne Mahoney was the teenage daughter of a Detroit police officer living near City Airport. Her father worked out of the 7th Precinct and normally patrolled Davis's neighborhood. She had numbed to the danger that her father faced every day as a police officer. That is, until late July, 1967. It was scary for us. Yeah, we were very, very worried about our dad. I think it was the turning point for us because I can remember as a child my dad getting up in the morning, putting on his uniform, putting on his gun and leaving, and I never felt threatened. You know, I never felt, uh, I mean, he just, it was his routine, and, um, and I have to say that I think my dad told me that he never, he never shot his gun in the whole time that he was a police officer. Free Press reporter Bill Sarin wrote a piece called The 43 Who Died. It recalled the stories of those who lost their lives in the riot. Sarin says the story of a young man who died in that 7th Precinct neighborhood had a profound impact on his career. About the third or fourth day of the riot, or second or third day, I was just writing in the front of the city room, and there had been a young man killed on the east side. And there was a story, and I wrote the story, it said he, the police said he was a sniper, He'd been shot with a weapon in his hand, and uh, say a week or two later, 
a, a guy, I've got something on my desk, and he's got like one or two little boys with him, and he's a white man from Kentucky. And he says, are you Bill Theron? And I said, yeah. And he said, I'm so-and-so. I'm the father of the kid who uh, was the alleged sniper. And he had pictures of that young man laid out in his coffin in the home in Kentucky, in the living room of the home. And he said, I just drove up here from Kentucky, mind you, to tell you that my boy was not a sniper. So I checked it out. I did some reporting, and we found out that he had, like so many hundreds of thousands of others, he had come to Detroit to work in the auto plants and make some money from the south in the mountains and Appalachian stuff. And he was carrying a broom in his hand. He had a broom in his hand. And that sort of, and that, well, I called up some editors and Kurt Lutke and Neil, and um, we said we really got to do an investigation of each of these deaths. And we did. And that really changed my life. And I, I think I became a much more serious person after that. I've never forgotten that story. That young man, Clifton Pryor, came to Detroit, like so many others, during the 20s, 30s, and 40s, looking for a brighter future. After the riot, many began to leave. There was a mass exodus of white residents to eastern suburbs like Warren, St. Clair Shores, and the Points. White flight was in full effect. Running away to get away. Suzanne Mahoney says the stress of the riot contributed to her father's heart attack, and eventually he moved the family out of the city. They stayed until the early, early 70s. At that time, police officers were required to live in the city, so he felt um, that he, the city was changing and he wanted um, to move away, and he, um, he sold his home after he retired and moved um, up, you know, further up north. I think he did it all those years, and uh, he just had had enough. Bill Sarin did just the opposite. A native of Saginaw living in Pontiac in July of 1967, he and his family reversed white flight and moved into the city's east side two years after the riot. After short stints in Lafayette Park and on Van Dyke, the family settled in Indian Village. Saren had a love for the city, yet he says life in Indian Village was tough in the early 70s. There was a homicide at each of the grocery stores we shopped at. And to me, that's the lusters of, lusters of something, for Christ's sakes. It was tough. Saren and his family stayed on the east side and watched the neighborhood crumble until he got a job offer in New York. He has returned to Detroit several times since leaving for New York. Whenever he comes back, he makes a point to drive around the city and visit his old neighborhood. Saren says what he sees on the side streets of Detroit is some of the worst deterioration in the world. I came back again, and um, God, I drove all around. I know things are going well in some ways, but go into the neighborhoods. It looks like Beirut. Our house, which we I planted 29 trees in that house. That house, it's empty and got three broken windows. An in Indian village. Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick announced an initiative to help restore deteriorating neighborhoods. East English Village is one of six neighborhoods that will share $125 million to increase police presence, provide small business loans, and issue facade improvement grants over the next five years. Whether it's the intersection of 12th and Claremont on the west side or Charlevoix and Mount Elliott on the east side, Detroit, like all American cities, is nothing without its neighborhoods. Many residents hope the program 
finally heals one of the biggest casualties of the 1967 riot. I'm Brian Rentschler.